Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we're going to talk to Catherine Carstairs on her history of oral health in Canada. Catherine Carstairs is Professor of History at the University of Guelph, where she specializes in the history of health and medicine, as well as gender history. Her first book on the history of illegal drug use in Canada was published in 2006. We are here to talk about her current book, The Smile Gap, A History of Oral Health and Social Inequality, published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2022. Catherine, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me. This is really the first scholarly history of oral health and dentistry in Canada. What motivated you to research and write this book? So it actually strangely all started with a project on health food stores and uh, the history of health food in Canada. Um, But as part of that, I was interested in the campaigns that health food stores um, were involved in. And one of the campaigns that health food stores were heavily involved in was the anti-fluoridation movement in the 1950s and 60s. So that got me interested in the question of water fluoridation. But then I started more broadly poking around in the the history of, of oral health. And I came across a study that took place in the early 1970s, which really surprised me. So this study was the first sort of comprehensive study that had been done of Canadians' oral health. As I mentioned, it took place in the early 1970s. So I was a toddler around then. And it showed that by the time Canadian women were in their 40s, which was about the age I was when I was looking at this survey, um, an average of 40% of them were missing either all of their top teeth, all of their bottom teeth, or all of their teeth altogether. And I was really surprised by this. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have very good oral health. I had good dental care as a child. and As an adult, I've had access to dental insurance. And so I was really shocked that in the early 1970s, when I was alive, um, that people's teeth were so bad. Um, And yet I also realized that my own good oral health today is very much a consequence of my class privilege. Uh, Many Canadians today continue to suffer from pain in their mouths, missing teeth, and other oral health problems. So really what I wanted to do in this book is show how much our oral health at a population level has improved. I mean, there have been huge gains, um, but this has also left enormous gaps in care. So hence the name of my book, The Smile Gap. Now, it seems to me that there's a policy problem that underpins this book, uh, the inequity of access to dental care for sure, but the reluctance of governments to intervene to improve access despite this clear inequality of access. Is my supposition correct? And if it is, why have governments in Canada, with a very few exceptions, been so reluctant to intervene? I think you're absolutely right. There's been very little government involvement in the delivery of um, dental care services, at least in comparison to sort of hospital or or physician services, which, you know, although physician services continue to be private but are publicly funded. um, There have been programs for people on social assistance, and there have been programs in place in some provinces that cover um, dental care for children. Um, In Alberta, interestingly, there was a very generous 
program for pensioners. So there has been spotty coverage here and there, but in general, oral health has been left to the private system um, and public private payment. And I think there's a variety of reasons for this. There was there was some thought of including dentistry when Medicare was first developed. Um, but there was a shortage of dentists at the time. Um, and I think that momentum towards this stalled when Medicare proved to be a lot more costly than initially um, predicted. Um, and then, of course, burgeoning government debts in the 1970s made it even more likely that governments were going to embark on new kinds of social provisions. Um, Part of the issue, too, is also the dentists were really opposed to including dentistry in Medicare. They believed that oral health was an individual responsibility, and they thought that Canadians could afford dentistry if they only really prioritized it in their household budget. Um, and I think, you know, it's quite interesting. Many of the dentists that I interviewed um, actually really enjoyed the entrepreneurial aspects of dentistry. They liked the fact that they had their own private um, dental office and that they were able to function without what they saw as governmental interference. And so as Medicare developed, many of them thought that actually they were quite lucky to have maintained their independence from the state and sort of crowd that, you know, being a dentist was far better than being a doctor because um, dentistry was still um, primarily private. You start chapter one with a review of oral health that was commissioned in 1910 by the Toronto Board of Education. What were its findings in terms of the state of oral health at the time, and why did you choose to begin your book in this way? Well, again, one of the things I wanted to show in my book was how much our oral health has improved. There's many inequalities, as I point out, but you know, overall, there's been huge improvements. And this study was one of the few that showed the state of oral health at the beginning of the 20th century. And so the Toronto Board of Health hired a dentist to look into the mouths of school children. And he found that only about 10% of them brushed their teeth regularly, so very low rates of tooth brushing. And of course, people's diets tended to be quite high in sugar and carbohydrates at the time as well. So, you know, their their nutrition didn't really help the, the oral health um, either. Um, and so this ended up um, resulting in some quite dire data. So at the Elizabeth Street School in the working class ward of Toronto, 76% um, of the children could not chew properly because of their oral health problems. 61% um, of them had abscesses in their mouth. 45%, nearly half of them, had pus leaking into their mouth from the, from the infections that they had. And so I really wanted to start this book because I wanted to highlight the, the improvements. I mean, there are inequalities today, but, you know, as a whole, most of us do much, much better than this. And of course, some of this has to do with dentistry, um, but I would argue that a lot of it also has to do with people um, being able to consume more nutritious diets. Um, the fact that, you know, people adopt the toothbrushing habit in the early part of the, the 20th century um, made a big difference to people's oral health as well. And part of the book does look at the explosion of toothpaste advertisements in the interwar period, which, you know, promised good looks, romantic and career success if you if you brushed your teeth. And that seems to have done as much 
um, to um, improve people's um, oral health practices at home as um, dentists did at the at the time, just because, I mean, not the dentists didn't also think it was a good idea to brush your teeth, but relatively few people had access to the regular services of a dentist in the early part of the 20th century. Well, on that point, what was the state of dentistry in Canada in the early 20th century, around the time of the Toronto Board of Education inquiry? There were dentists throughout Canada, but you know they they had a very different kind of practice than what we would we would see today. I don't really talk about this much in the the book itself, but of course this is the day before um, electric drills. Dentistry was quite rudimentary um, compared to what we see today, and of course you know more importantly from the sort of point of view of my book, which focuses on the the oral health of the population, um, you know relatively few people would have had the money to afford going to to the dentist. So, um, you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, self-delivered dental care, pulling out teeth and things like that. Um, uh, cause dentistry was, was really for the middle or our upper middle classes at this time. One of the more interesting public health interventions in the 20th century involves the campaigns to fluoridate water in various communities. Uh, what happened in terms of fluoridation in Canada? Where did it happen? Why did it happen? So this was the issue that really got me interested in this this book to to begin with, because water fluoridation ended up being enormously controversial. And um, I spent part of my childhood in in Calgary, um, which has had many repeated debates over water fluoridation. And uh, my parents were big fans of water fluoridation and just couldn't understand why people repeatedly voted against water fluoridation. Um, so I was was interested in this topic. So why did people um, oppose water fluoridation? It's an intervention that started in Canada in um, 1945. There was data from uh, the interwar period in the United States that suggested that communities that had a very small amount of fluoride in their water supplies, fluoride can occur naturally in water supplies. So they were looking at communities that had naturally occurring fluoride compared to communities that didn't have naturally occurring fluoride. And they found that when there was about one part per million in the of fluoride in the water supply, that the children actually had much better teeth than in communities that had um, no fluoride in their water supply. So um, they went from that research to looking into whether or not fluoride could be artificially added um, to water supplies in order to improve um, the people's oral health. And so Canada began a study of controlled water fluoridation in 1945. Um, it involved three cities, um, Bradford, which added fluoride to its water, um, Stratford, which had naturally occurring fluoride in its water, and Sarnia, which acted as a control. Um, there were several similar studies happening in the United States at the at the time, and the initial results of these studies were quite promising. Um, and dentists uh, began to enthusiastically support the measure, and cities began debating whether or not to they should add fluoride to their water supply to improve, um, especially children's oral health. At that time, it was really believed that the primary benefit would be to children. So Winnipeg was one of the first cities to um, fluoridate their water supply in 1956. 
Um, Toronto decided to add fluoride in 1962, but it becomes enormously controversial. Um, many people were worried about um, what they saw as the potential health risks of adding fluoride to the water. They felt that it hadn't been sufficiently studied. A lot of older people complained that, you know, they were all being forced to drink uh, fluoridated water, even though the measure would only benefit children. Um, other people complained about the cost of the measure. Um, in Toronto, the radio columnist Gordon Sinclair, you know, famously repeated on his radio show over and over again that, you know, Toronto would be adding rat poison to its water <laughs> supply. And why would they want to, to do that? Um, and as a result, you know, water fluoridation becomes really hotly contested. Uh, many of the largest cities in Canada never adopted um, water fluoridation, including, of course, Montreal and Vancouver have never fluoridated their water. Um, and of course, I mean, it's not the lively debate that it was in the 1950s and 60s, but it still reoccurs um, in, in Canada. Um, cities, because, it, you know, water is a municipal issue, um, cities continue to debate whether or not they should have fluoride in their water supply. And if so, what's the right amount of fluoride to have in their, their water supply? So um, it, 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 it resonates up until today. Although, of course, it's not quite the crucial issue today that it was in the 50s and 60s because now the differences between fluoridated and unfluoridated communities are not as great as they were in the 1950s and 60s, partly because we all have access to fluoridated toothpaste now and they've turned out to be a very effective intervention, much more effective than people thought they would be um, when they were first introduced. In chapter three, you lay out the history of post-war dental coverage. An interesting case, in fact, when you compare it to the evolution of universal hospital and medical care coverage in Canada. Why were these programs largely limited to children and to people on social assistance? In other words, targeted as opposed to universal programs. You know, there was this strong belief um, among dentists, but also amongst other people as well, that oral health was a matter of individual responsibility. Um, I think, you know, there's Oral health care is rarely catastrophic. Um, it often tends to be sort of accumulative and, you know, requires like regular um, kind of maintenance. So it's seen as kind of the individual responsibility to keep that up to a greater degree than, you know, medical care, which we know, um, you know, can often be, you know, sort of dire emergencies that, you know, people can't possibly afford to to cover. Um so I think, you know, that's part of it. Um, dentists were also, um, you know, they weren't particularly keen on um, denticare programs for adults, but they did believe in denticare for children. They thought that if children got used to taking care of their teeth when they were young and as part of that, visiting the dentist regularly, that it would become a lifelong habit. And so they saw, I mean, partly I think, you know, there's, generally tends to be a lot more support for programs that target children just because, you know, we see them as their future. Um, but dentists, so dentists, you know, felt that children were the population that should be prioritized, but also because they saw it as beneficial for them over the long run, too, that once children got in the habit of going to the dentist, they would keep it up as a lifelong habit. Um, I think there was also an interesting issue around rural urban inequalities that paid in that played into the support for children's dental care 
Um, in the 50s and 60s, there was a real shortage of dentists in, in Canada, and this resulted in significant, significant disparities in terms of whether or not people had access to dental care. People in urban areas were much more likely to find a dentist that would be able to treat them. It was much harder in, in rural areas. And part of this is that, you know, setting up a dental office can be quite expensive. Um, and dentists wanted to make sure that they could attract a large volume of patients. And so they were inclined to establish their offices in larger centers. Um, but children's dental programs helped to make rural practices more feasible because at least you would have the children of that community going to the dentist. And so it was thought that it was almost a bit of a subsidy for those rural practices that everyone recognized were, were necessary. Um, and so children's dentistry was a way not just of improving the oral health of children, which people agreed would be a good thing, but also um, could act as a tool to reduce urban-rural inequalities as well. Now, you also talk about something called the Saskatchewan Plan and how it went well beyond the other plans in terms of coverage and impact. How did the Saskatchewan Children's Dental Plan come into being? And what would you say were its most important features, the ones that set it apart from other provincial plans? Yeah, the Saskatchewan had a really innovative program, which you've also written about, um, uh, Greg. Um, so I think there were a couple things that made the Saskatchewan plan, which was introduced in the early 1970s, quite different from what happened in the rest of the country. And uh, you know, I wish personally that it had been emulated far more, far more broadly. So two distinctive features. First, it was delivered in schools rather than through private dental offices. So this made it so much easier for parents. Um, you know, you your kid just got, with your permission, just got treated at school. Um, and, you know, you didn't have to take them out to school to, like, go and travel to the dentist's office. You didn't have to take time off work. Um, it just made it so much easier for, for parents. And as a result, more parents used... Um, the children's dental program in Saskatchewan than even in other provinces that established private dental programs. They weren't nearly as used by parents as the Saskatchewan program. The other thing that made the Saskatchewan program really distinctive was that most of the people delivering care were not dentists, um, but they were specially trained dental nurses who were later um, called dental therapists. And the dental therapists went through a two-year training program that was geared specifically towards the care of children's teeth. Um, and so by employing um, these professionals, it was less expensive than providing private care through dental offices. Um, but dentists hated the program. They felt that it was... <laughs> They, they felt that it was inappropriate to have um, lesser trained people working in the mouth, that there wasn't enough direct supervision by dentists. And of course, it also took potential patients away from the private dental office, which is where dentists wanted to, to see patients. So ultimately, um, their criticism sort of ground away at the, the program, and it was, it was abandoned in, in 1987, which was a real loss, I think, not just for the people of society, Saskatchewan, but for the people of the rest of the country that I think could have really learned and benefited from that from that program. I love the title of your chapter five, Aging Smiles. Uh, and actually, I was quite taken with the quality of life differences 
of keeping your teeth as opposed to replacing your teeth with dentures as you get older. Of course, this was quite a bit of, uh, about a subject which I really didn't have much idea, nor did I have a very clear picture of what the situation was even a few decades ago, and you clearly outlined that. Can you describe this, what is actually quite a recent development, and why it has only become an option uh, in recent decades. What was, what was going on here and that really forced for so long people into the position of losing all their teeth or getting them pulled out and replacing them with dentures as opposed to the options that we now have available of keeping your own teeth? Yeah, I'm so glad you you liked this chapter. It's it's one of my favorite ones in the the book. Um, I don't think we've paid enough attention to healthcare and and aging and generally in the historical literature. So I was I was really happy to to write this chapter. So um, as I talked about, you know that survey that I mentioned at the beginning of the early 1970s. I mean, most Canadians were losing their teeth in in middle age, if not earlier, um, just 50 years ago. And they were generally replacing those missing um, teeth with dentures. And dentures, um, you know, gave you a set of teeth, but they also came with some significant disadvantages. They often click when people um, talk. Um, they can make you gag. They lead to denture breath. They limit the kinds of foods that you can you can eat. So, um, you know, they're better than having no teeth, um, but there's still sort of a, some significant disadvantages to, to wearing um, dentures. Um, and in the book, I quote one denture wearer who wrote, you know, even intrepid souls hate seeing their mate's teeth smiling at them from a glass of water beside the bed, right? It's just, there's a sort of indignity to, um, to dentures. But by the 1990s, there's a much better option available. And of course, too, by the 1990s, oral health has improved so much that many people are no longer losing their teeth thanks to, you know, water fluoridation, fluoridated toothpaste, more access to dentists through private dental insurance. There's a lot of things that by the 1990s, more and more people are keeping their, their own teeth. But if they do lose teeth, they now have a much better option available to them, which is dental implants. Um, so dental implants like screw into the bony ridges of the, the mouth. And by the early part of the 21st century, so really just 20 years ago, um, many dentists began taking courses in dental implants and began including implants as part of their dental practices. Um, and so the dental implants, you know, sometimes just replace a missing tooth, but other times provide a secure base for other um, dental apparatuses, bridges and things like that. And um, so they've made it much more stable um, than, you know, dentures that just resided on the, the bony ridges of the, the mouth. And people really describe their lives as being transformed by, by implants. It's a really you know, significant improvement in the technology that's available. You know, people can now eat a much broader range of foods. Um, and, you know, there's there's a lot of health benefits of that. But of course, you know, dental implements um, remain quite expensive for people. So they're not available to everyone. Um, but for those who can access them, they're a, they're a fantastic intervention. You devote some time to the rise of cosmetic uh, dentistry in Canada. Can you give us an outline of 
cosmetic dentistry and what changed in Canada again quite recently? Dentistry has become much more diverse, I would say, in terms of the kinds of dental practices that exist. I was sort of surprised when I first started doing um, some oral interviews for this book at, at visiting these very luxurious dental offices in Toronto. I go to quite a simple dental office here in here in Guelph. Um, so I wasn't kind of aware of the degree to which cosmetic dentistry had taken over the field. Um, so, you know, now... Um, a lot of dental practices advertise that they do cosmetic dentistry, and they often do so in quite luxurious circumstances. Um, and you can get cosmetic dentistry alongside Botox and other interventions. Um, part of what fueled the growth in cosmetic dentistry was the solving of the dental shortage, which I had talked about earlier. So by the 1970s, you have far more dentists being educated. There's new schools that have opened up um, across the country. And by the 1980s, some people were describing a glut of dentists, um, especially in larger urban centers. And so it's increasingly difficult for dentists to find enough patients in order to have a successful practice. And so um, dentists become really interested in practice management. Um, they need to sort of flex their entrepreneurial skills, um, so to speak, in order to, to get enough business. And of course, it's becoming, by this point, even more expensive to run a, a dental office. Um, and so their costs are, are quite high. And um, in the early... 1990s, tuition really increases for dental students as well. And so, you know, uh, newly graduating dentists are on the hook to pay back a lot of money. And so it's very important that they make their practices profitable. Um, and this seems to have all fed into the drive for more cosmetic dentistry and the development of these very um, luxurious um, dental offices where you can get, you know, spa treatments and hand massages and aromatherapy while you're having your, your dental work done. Um, and there's all sorts of new um, uh, procedures being offered by these dental offices. So we start to see tooth whitening emerge as a major service. Um, adult orthodontics becomes increasingly popular. Um, people who are unhappy with the shape and color of their teeth can get veneers. Um, and in the early 21st century, there was a variety of makeover shows on television that showed people how cosmetic dentistry could transform their, their smiles and, you know, made it um, attractive for people to seek out these procedures. And of course, dentists themselves encouraged it. I mean, some dentists, you know, would have you assess your smile at the first appointment, and then you could like talk about the interventions that would improve your, your smile. And of course, all this is taking place in the midst of a big uptick in cosmetic surgeries of all kinds. So it's not surprising that cosmetic dentistry takes off as well. And of course, people are under more in a, you know, age of social media and constant photos, people are under more and more pressure to, um, you know, have the best possible physical appearance. Um, and, you know, this has, this has fed into the growth of cosmetic dentistry as well. So, you know, it's a mix between dentists, promoting it in order to make their their businesses more profitable. Um, but it's also about clients, you know, seeking it because, um, you know, they're they're aware of these new interventions, what how they can, you know, change people's people's looks. And there's a pretty high demand for it. So, 
yeah, dentistry has really shifted um, over the past um, 20, 30 years since cosmetic dentistry really emerged on the scene. Well, Catherine, it would have been difficult to anticipate uh, what was going to happen uh, late this year, but uh, the recent policy initiative by the federal liberal government with the support of the NDP on dental care coverage, which uh, I think uh, was something that was quite sudden, forced by a minority government uh, and the priorities of a smaller party in parliament. But would you be prepared to speculate a bit on the future of dental care coverage uh, in light of this very recent movement? Yeah, I mean, it has been, um, you know, quite sudden in some respects. I mean, you interviewed me a couple of months ago about a paper I wrote comparing Denticare and Pharmacare. And when I wrote that paper, I thought Pharmacare would be more likely to be um, implemented than Denticare. But instead, we have um, Denticare um, largely, you know, it's been promoted by the the NDP in the past um, couple of elections. Um, and they've really... Um, hit on it as, as, as a major issue. And then within recent agreement, um, they've been able to get a small measure passed. Now, I think the, the existing measure, I think, doesn't go very far towards resolving the inequalities that I talk about in the book. Um, right now, it's just an interim measure that will provide a dental benefit to parents that they apply for at tax time. Um, parents who earn less than $70,000 a year will qualify for a benefit of $650 a year per child if they don't have private dental insurance. Um, and parents who earn between 70 and 90 will qualify for smaller amounts. Um, I don't think that this measure is going to help people all that much, um, especially if the child has extensive dental needs. Um, I also think that, you know, parents, especially in those income groups, are being really hard hit by inflation right now. And I think they might struggle to spend that money on, on dental care. So the Liberal government says that they're working towards a more comprehensive program by 2025. And I hope that we'll see something that's a bit more meaningful um, by then. Then this uh, first tentative step, right? Yeah. Thank you so much, Catherine, for appearing with us today and for talking about your newest book. Thank you for having me. My guest today was Catherine Carstairs, the author of The Smile Gap, a history of oral health and social inequality published by McGill Queen's University Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We are also supported by the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshaldon. 
This interview was recorded on October 25th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and professionally assisted by the University of Toronto Press Journal team who also support the activities of the Champlain Society. Music